As we kick things off this morning, I'm going to need a little bit of help from you. So I'm going to start a phrase or a sentence. And as best you can, if you know it, I'd love to have you finish the thought. Let's try and see how we do. What goes up? M&M's. Melts in your mouth. Like a good neighbor? Right. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. Good. I can't get no... Right. Hey, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. <laughs> I was waiting for the clap. I'm waiting for the clap. Subway. I pledge allegiance to the flag. The few, the proud, the Marines. I've hidden your word. Great. Your word is a lamp. It's amazing as I was thinking, getting ready for today's message. The slogans, the lyrics to songs, the things that run around our minds. Each one of us is equipped with a hippocampus, and a hippocampus is the part of the brain that functions as a, a running catalog. It's a place where we store information in our frontal cortex and divided from there. There's different types of memory, short-term memory and long-term memory. There's circumstantial memory. But inevitably, as you start to commit things to memory, a lot of times it can be based on the sensories. I bet if I asked you to think back even more intensely over some of the phrases or statements that we just read aloud, it would take you to a specific place in time because of touch, taste, sight, smell, or sound. It would help you identify with something differently. And the reality is that I don't know that I even realized how many things that I've picked up on, how many things that I have memorized, how many things that I've learned over the course of time through repetition and through consistency. And that's how the hippocampus works, is our mind innately works at finding patterns and linking together repetition so that we can recall to mind or recall to memory and we can be driving in a, in a truck and a song can come on and it'll take us back to a, a place where we remember so vividly hearing that for the first time. And I wonder, as I was thinking about this this week, I wondered about the amount of time that we spend memorizing things, the amount of time that we spend hearing things, reciting things, going over things. And so I, I pressed in a little bit more. I kind of doubled up on some of the statistics that I learned from last week that I shared with you about mobile phone use. If you were here last week, then you'll recall that I talked about the percentage of mobile phone users and some of the staggering statistics. Things like the average person will check their mobile phone 110 times a day. They'll pick it up and set it down and they'll look for notifications or emails or social media updates. I talked about the staggering number of hours that people spend on their mobile phones, the average being two hours and 51 minutes. But as I pressed in to where Americans on the by and large spend the majority of their time, I was shocked to learn some more statistics that I want to share with you today. Statistically, Americans have, on average, three televisions in their home today and watch an average, a collective average in America 
of five hours and four minutes every single day of television. And this is not just some remedial pull that people have taken, that they've gone out and said, hey, tell us how much time you spend watching television. These are the, the companies that monitor the airwaves and the bandwidth and the amount of time that programs are watched, that they're pulling these, these statistics together and sharing that. And so what we learn then is that across America, Throughout homes in America, five hours and four minutes every day, there's a television on average running in your house. Not only that, but I looked a little bit further into where we spend our time with social media. And social media represents YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. The average adult will spend two hours and 14 minutes a day. The average adult will spend two hours and 14 minutes a day on social media, mindlessly combing through Facebook, looking at how everybody else is living their life, mindlessly watching videos that people post on YouTube, mindlessly looking at these videos, these five, 10, 15 second videos that the people are sending back and forth with different memes and thoughts and funny faces and silly captions. But if two hours and 14 minutes is the average for adults, I wanted to know about teenagers. Would it surprise you, hopefully but probably not, that the average teenage cell phone user aged 12 to 18 in America today spends nine hours and 12 minutes every day on social media? Nine hours and 12 minutes a day on average, mindlessly combing through social media. These are the things that they're meditating on. These are the things that they're committing to memory. These are the things that they're learning, that they're allowing to influence their lives. These are the platforms that they're gaining information, that they're gaining insight, that they're gaining knowledge. And each one of us is, is a part of that. And I just wonder, as I wrestled with this concept this week, this spiritual discipline of meditation, how much time we, on average in America as Christians, spend reading our Bible. How much time we, on average in America as Christians, spend memorizing scripture and, the, and, and commit to the spiritual discipline of meditation. And so I read, I read an article from Lifeway Research. And Lifeway Research, they, through doing a, a poll, went around to churches across America interviewing various people from various churches and faith backgrounds. And here's what they wrote about those who study the Bible. A recent Lifeway research study found that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. And of those 45%, only 40% of those 45 who attend might read their Bible once or twice a month. And of those 40% of the 45%, one in five say that they've never read the Bible. The average person in America spends less than 10 minutes a week reading their Bible. We'll spend upwards of nine hours and 12 minutes on social media. We'll spend upwards of five hours and four minutes on, on, on television. And I read another article just published at the very end of last year by Netflix. Netflix was doing a study, some market research on how people watch Netflix. 
What they determined is that most people view Netflix like they do a, 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 a container of Pringles chips or Lay's potato chips. They can't just have one. Most people who watch Netflix will binge watch Netflix. Over 60% of people who watch Netflix will watch five hours of Netflix continuously. They'll start an episode. And then from one episode, it'll turn into two. And from two, it'll turn into three. I have stopped allowing my friends to tell me what shows they're watching. Because inevitably, I'll turn on, I'll turn on my Netflix and it'll pop up that this is a series that's out there. Uh, How I Met Your Mother or whatever these shows are. I haven't watched that. But, but or The Office or, 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 or for me, it was Friday Night Lights way back in the day. And I remember seeing up until two or three in the morning sometimes watching five, six, seven episodes at a time. Yet less than 10 minutes a week, not a day, less than 10 minutes a week is committed to studying the word of God. And so we have to wrestle with this question then. What would happen if we took just a fraction of time and spent meditating on God's word, spent not just reading God's word or sifting through a devotional, doing the proverbial Christian thing and checking off our religious responsibility, but if we spent time meditating on the God, on God, the God that we love, that we serve, and on his word, how much stronger would our faith be? You read statistics like this, and it's no wonder, it's no wonder that we, we face, as Christians and even as individuals in the society, an, an anemic America. I sat with my 12-year-old daughter last night, Taylor, and we were celebrating her birthday. She turned 12 yesterday, and we were, we were sitting there talking, and and she said, Dad, I was doing some research in my social studies class, and we were talking about the state of America. And she said, it's, she said Dad, I'm really scared. This is from a 12-year-old. We're all having dinner together, my wife and I and our kids. And, and she said, I'm just, I'm, I'm so scared. And we're at this restaurant, and she's worried about if somebody would come in and hold the place up at gunpoint, what I would do. And I said, oh, baby, you don't have to worry. Daddy's here. <laughs> you just finished your burrito. I got this. All joking aside, our students, our children, our, our, our generations coming up are being so influenced by social media and the world at large that they've lost sight of what matters most. And, and Stacy, my amazing wife, sat there and said, Taylor, honey, I, here I am saying, Daddy will come to the rescue. And Stacy says, honey, you don't have to worry about it because you've got Jesus in your heart. And regardless of when or where or why, we're all going to die. But where we go in the end is with him forever, so you're good. And she said, oh, that makes sense, Mom. Thanks. I'm like, yeah, but I got it, Taylor. <laughs> I want to invite you as we pick up week three of our Stronger series, a 12-week series where we're intentionally discovering together some spiritual disciplines that we can employ to our faith to help us grow stronger. I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and, and turn right to the middle, just past, go, go to the middle and head to the left to the book of Psalms. Start with Psalm 1. We're going to be in Psalm 1, the very first psalm. And if you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to raise your hand. And One of our ushers would like to bring you a Bible, and this Bible is yours to have and to keep. But let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and turn to Psalm 1, where we're going to spend all of our time today. There's just six short verses, so we'll be out of here quick, guys. Oh, you've been going to church here for a while. There's just six verses that we're going to jump into together today. Week one in our Stronger series, we talked about the importance of studying God's word. The value of studying God's word. And I, and I made this statement. I said, everything we learn by way of spiritual disciplines over the course of these 
three months together, this 12-week series is going to be predicated on the understanding that we need to study God's Word. And last week, we talked about the spiritual discipline of, of prayer. And we looked at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, and, and we talked about prayer being three things, ask, seek, and knock. That asking is all about pursuing a relationship with God, that that seeking is, is all about aligning our priorities with, with God's will. And that knocking is about a, a pursuit. A, it's about a perseverance, a persistence in our relationship with God. Today, we're going to look at meditation and what meditation isn't and what meditation is and what it's intended to be. And the value, the importance, the significance of meditation in our lives as we add it to our faith. Father, I pray that over these few moments we have together that you would redeem this time for your glory, that you would ready our minds and prepare our hearts to receive from your word. God, I pray that as we read this passage of scripture together, you would illuminate our minds and that this would become alive in us. Holy Spirit, wash over us. I pray against distractions that might keep us from hearing your voice, that might keep us from experiencing your touch, that might keep us from knowing your will. And Father, may the words of my mouth as we spend these moments together and the words of uh, the, the meditations of our hearts, what we think about, what we go over again and again, be holy and pleasing to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Starting in verse one of Psalm one, the psalmist writes, Oh, the joys. That word joys in the original language means blessed. If you have a literal translation like the English Standard Version or the King James Version of the Bible, maybe the New King James or the New American Standard Version, it would actually use, in place of the word joys, the word blessed. They, 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 they work together. They coincide. They are, are, they are essentially saying the same thing. The New Living Translation is what we call a dynamic version of the Bible, which means that it was written from the original languages, from the original Hebrew, from the original Greek, from the original Aramaic and Latin, that it was translated down from the original, but it was written in modern vernacular. And so uh, the, 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 the tradition is not lost, the, 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 the identity of the word is not lost. And what I want us to know is that the word joy, or the joys, or the blessings, is mentioned 26 different times throughout the course of the Psalms. The reason that it's important that I point out that this word is mentioned 26 different times is because of what I said at the beginning, and that is that our bodies innately, our minds innately, our hippocampus, in order to commit something to memory, innately looks for patterns and repetition. Patterns and repetition. And so the fact that the psalmists write in the collection of prayers, in the collection of poetry, in the collection of praises that make up the Psalms that they write at least 26 different times about the blessings, about the joys. And here's what that word literally signifies is that it's an all-encompassing. I want you to imagine a, a canvas. I have my oldest daughter, 22. She is very artistic. She loves to paint and to draw and to use chalk and do all kinds of things. When she was first learning to paint, I watched her one time stretch a canvas and then she took a, a, a brush with white paint on it and she painted over the entire canvas. And I asked her what she was doing because the canvas was already white. And she talked to me about a process that I know nothing about, about pores and tightening the canvas. And uh, it, it was brilliant how she said it. 
And so I, I look at this, and the idea there is it's a broad brushstroke, that it covers everything. This term here, the way that it's used, is like a canvas, where it's a broad brushstroke, and it covers every area of our lives. When we, read the read, when we were to read, uh, read the word joys, think about that, that this joy is a lifestyle. And then I want you guys to think about this. It says, oh, the joys of those. We have to ask, who are those? The Psalms were originally intended for the Israelites. But the way that that word is written should give you and I hope. So often we look at those as the spiritually elite, those who have spiritually arrived as the religious leaders, those who are seasoned in their faith. But this word translated in the original language literally means all of us, anyone, those, anyone who would actively pursue God. This is applicable for anybody who is actively pursuing God. Let me just take a moment to tell you that if you're here this morning, and you, you don't know about this whole Christianity thing. You're brand new to this whole church thing. Or maybe you grew up in the church, but uh, you're, you're exploring church all over again. And, and you know there's got to be more to this. And you're just pressing in. I am so glad you're here. We welcome you. And I hope that you encounter Jesus Christ today and that your life is changed forever. And just know that as we read this together, that this is intended for all of us. Any of us who would intentionally and authentically, honestly, Search out the things of God. This is for us. And now we're going to talk about what we call addition or multiplication by subtraction. We're going to multiply our faith. We're going to see how our faith is multiplied, how we become stronger, first by removing some things in our lives. The psalmist is going to introduce three different things. He's going to use terms like wicked. He's going to use terms like sinner. He's going to use terms like mockers. And so this is multiplication of our faith, growing stronger in our faith by subtraction. Let's investigate this together. He says, oh, the joys, the complete blessings of those, anyone who's searching after God, who do not. There's the, multi, the separation now, the, 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 the subtraction. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. And who do not stand around with sinners. And who do, not, who do not join in with the mockers. Church, I want us to see the slippery slope that is the natural progression of separation from God. I want to say that again. So lean in. I want us to see the slippery slope that is a natural progression that separates us. From God. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that bad company corrupts good morals. And what the psalmist here is writing is he's writing about an experience where we start off standing, you know, walking, kind of following others who are living their lives separate from God. We see them from a distance, but we, we can hear them. So we begin to follow a little more closely so that we can listen in, so that we can have a conversation. I realize I do this quite a bit, and I don't even mean to. I'll be at a restaurant, regardless of who I'm with, and somebody will start talking about church. And it's like a hypersensitive radar goes off my mind, and I'm able to hyper-focus on what they're saying. Or they'll start talking about the Philadelphia Eagles and how they're going to pummel the Vikings today. And I just get excited in my soul. And I listen in. As hopefuls like Steve Lacey think the Vikings will win. 
We, we, the Eagles will look good in Minneapolis in Super Bowl. That we, 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 we start at a distance and we begin to walk and, and as we hear, something catches our attention and we, we, we don't really quite know all that there is to it, so we walk a little closer and before we know it, the slippery slope of progression that separates us from God, we're now standing in and amongst those that the Bible defines as sinners. Now, 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 the wicked isn't about actions or inactions. The wicked, the term wicked in, in this uh, verse here used, are those that do not desire the word of God, that do not know the word of God. Sinners are a byproduct of those who do not desire the word of God and who do not know the word of God. They're living in sin. And before we know it, we're standing amongst them and we're starting to exchange ideas. We're allowing them to speak into our lives. We're allowing them to influence us. We want to know more about what they think and... Before long, if we're not careful and we don't even realize it, we've taken up a seat at the table. We've pulled the chair out and we've made ourselves comfortable in the presence of those who mock God. Those who are not only distant from God, but who mock it. And you look back and you wonder how you ever got there. It's a slippery slope, and the psalmist warns about that, that in order for us to grow stronger in our faith, to multiply our faith, we've got to first subtract some things. What do we have to subtract? We have to be intentionally subtracting the influences and the influencers of the world. The Apostle Paul says, don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to be careful and mindful of who we're allowing to speak truth to us, who we're allowing to speak into our lives, what, what mediums of information we're using to, 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 to create decisions and make up our minds about who we are, what we believe, why we believe what we believe, and living out what we believe, why we believe. We've got to be deliberate and intentional. This doesn't just happen. And it's so easy to take place, as the psalmist clearly defines here. Now comes multiplication of our faith by addition. So we've got to subtract the influences, the advice of the wicked. When I read that, I talk about the hippocampus and memories. My coach, Ed Burton, when I played football, talked to us about opinions and advice. And there were times, not me, I never complained about extra conditioning. But there were other football players who would complain about the extra conditioning and they would offer their, their opinions and coach would always say, you know, guys, opinions, we'll call it opinions, are like armpits. Everybody's got them and they all stink. <laughs> you got to be careful who you allow to speak into your life. So if we're subtracting influences of the world, then what are we adding so that we can multiply our faith? Verse 2 says, but they delight. That word delight in the Hebrew, it means to actively search for. To actively search for. That we're looking for the law of the Lord. The word law is Torah, and the word Lord there represents creator God. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that anytime you see Lord capitalized, all four letters, capital L-O-R-N-D, that it is referring to Yahweh God, which is creator God. And now we're talking about the law of the Lord. And when we talk about the law of the Lord, the Old Testament, the Hebrew, it's called the Torah. And we know the Pentateuch is the Greek word for the same thing. But you've got the, the Torah, which represents the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And it's largely a collection of historical stories and a lot of law, a lot of rules, a lot of regulation, 
a lot of do's, a lot of don'ts, a lot of systems, a lot of processes. And what's incredible to me as I read this, and I'm going to read it again here in a minute after I explain some of the context, but we in our culture today, we, we have, uh, and, I, and I'm not mocking it because I'm, I'm, I do the same thing, but we, we will take a verse from the New Testament primarily and we will tattoo it on our bodies or we'll put it on coffee mugs or we'll make it on vinyl on our walls and we'll remind us of what we've learned and it's so important. That's not a bad thing. The New Testament largely is incredibly inspirational. It's incredibly insightful. It's incredibly motivational. When you, when you look at it, when you look at the life, the ministry, the words, the miracles of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the promise of his second coming, when you consider the words of the apostles and the early forefathers of a church who set the standards of how we're called to live our lives and we're reminded of how to live and the faithfulness that God has in us that we can have in him, and it's incredible but I want to read this again because he wasn't referring to all the inspirational things of the New Testament. He's talking about rules and regulations. He's talking about the law. He says, the delight, these people delight, they search after the laws of the Lord. They're finding joy in rules and regulations. That's incredible. And then he goes on to, Elaborate even more, talking about meditating on it day and night. Two things that we have to think about when we talk about meditation, meditating day and night. And that is this first, meditating means to murmur, to repeat, to recite, or to regurgitate. It is an, uh, an imagery of a cow who will eat its, uh, the, you know, it, the, the field greens and then it will swallow it, regurgitate it, chew on it some more, gain more nutrients by swallowing it, regurgitating it, chewing on it some more to, to, to make it palatable, to make it easier to digest and to gain more nutrients. That's the idea of meditating, that you go over it again and again and again in your mind. And he talks about meditating and he uses a word picture here of day and night. That's significant for a couple of different reasons. In scripture... We, we follow God by day and by night, a cloud by day and fire by night. So whenever uh, following the will of God, following the word of God, following the way of God is referenced specifically in the Old Testament, it's by day and by night, by cloud and by fire. But the thing about the New Testament, that when you read day and night, it represents time. There's a significance of a time frame that's associated with this. So day represents light, night represents darkness. What the author of this psalm is declaring, what the author of this psalm is, is, is giving us is that we are to meditate, that we are to, to think about, to murmur, to recite over and over again, to regurgitate God's word all of the time, day and night. This is where the Apostle Paul draws the idea that we are to pray without ceasing, literally without stopping, that we are to think on the things of God. And so here's what I want to introduce to you if you're taking notes. The, the first thing that I want to share that I think is going to be incredibly helpful for us, and I go all the way back to two weeks ago when I talked about studying God's Word. Studying God's Word is so important, but here's, here's, here's the separation and the difference. Let's never mistake studying God's Word for meditating on God's Word, because studying God's Word informs us but meditating on God's word transforms us. Studying God's word informs us. It educates us. It equips us. It instructs us. But you can have all the head knowledge in the world until it takes root in your life, until it, until it takes form and takes shape. It, it won't serve a greater purpose other than just head knowledge. But when you mull it over and you murmur it and you recite it and you go over and over the laws, the precepts and the directions, the instructions of God and you allow it to take root in your life, it will transform you. 
It will transform the way you think. It will transform the way you spend your time. It will transform the way you spend your days. It will transform your priorities. It will transform how you even think of yourself. Because you'll recognize all the more that you were created in the image of God, that you are a, a bearer of God, an image bearer of God. And so you'll begin to transform your understanding of who you are by focusing on God's word. Not just, not just meaningly uh, you know, you know, going through the, 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 the Bible or, or just simply reading off a devotion in the morning to check it off your to-do list and moving on with your day. Not giving it a second thought. But to meditate on it, to, to allow these precepts, these laws, these decrees, these instructions, these inspirations to fill you. And then he goes on, the psalmist here is going to give two visual word pictures as a literary or oratorical device to captivate our minds and to instruct us on actions. Verse 3, the kind of people that delight in the law of the Lord are the people that are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Guys, there's so much to unpack here. They're like trees planted along the riverbank. I, I, I think if you grew up in the Northwest like I did, Oregon and Washington, your perception of this is very different than a lot of the rest of the country. Different than New Mexico, different than Arizona, different than parts of Colorado. High desert doesn't function quite like this. Where I grew up, we were surrounded by rivers and streams. Or in Minneapolis, I was there five and a half years, there's over 14,000 lakes. I don't know why they call it the land of 10,000 lakes. There were 14,000. And you see along the edge of these riverbanks, you see along the edge of these ponds, of these lakes, of these streams, these trees that are healthy, that are mature, that have been there for a long time. And, and, and if you look close enough, as if you're fishing or if you're going exploring or you're, you're skipping rocks, you can look along some of the, 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 the riverbanks and you'll see root systems that have gone deep and have come out the side of the, the, the ground and have run into the river into the stream, into the lake. You can see where it draws its nutrients, where it gets its strength. And this depicts a picture of maturity. This is an, Im an Im imagination or excuse me, an imagery of, of strength, of, of continual growth that those who meditate on God's word, those who think over it again and again and recall it to their memory, uh, recall it to their hippocampus and allow it to infiltrate their lives and transform them, grow stronger and stronger like a tree planted by the river bearing fruit for each season and I want to talk about fruit for a second the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia in Galatians 5 22 and 23 about the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control what I need us to understand is that he's writing about the fruit of the spirit we read this or we hear this and we think of it as plural we think about it like a, like a marketplace where you walk in and the first thing you see are the milk, the eggs, and the produce. And you go through and you get to pick out the produce that you want to add to your cart. I'll take some love. I'll take some joy. Patience, you can stay over there. I got no time for you. Especially in rush hour traffic. Peace, that sounds good today. Perseverance, oh, I need extra perseverance. I'm going to grab a few of these. Get out the plastic bag. Blow in it. Put the fruit in there. Tie it off. Get to the register. Forget what the number was. But it's singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. And it represents the evidence of Christ at work in you through the Holy Spirit. 
That when you're planted and rooted by streams where you're drawing your strength and your nourishment and your sustenance from the word of God and you're mulling these things over, you're murmuring them, you're muttering them, you're reciting them, you're repeating them and they're becoming your your, your sustenance, your life source that you will begin to uh, allow this stuff to take root in your life and you will bear fruit. You will take all the guesswork out of it for other people that when they see you, they'll recognize the fruit of God on your life because of the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the Spirit of the Lord at work in you when you are rooted in the Word of God and meditate on His precepts. He says, they never wither. They're good for all seasons. And they prosper in all they do. They prosper in all they do. This is another opportunity for me to teach about a false movement of God. Little g. God. There's a movement out there, and I've talked about it before, the name it, claim it gospel, or the word faith movement, where pastors will take advantage of extracting verses from the Bible, extrapolating them out of context, and forcing meaning on them that don't exist. And people are hearing these messages that you're going to prosper in everything you do. If you give more money to the church, you're going to, you're going to prosper. If you pray harder, you're going to prosper. If you have more faith, you're going to prosper. If you're not prospering, it's because you're weak. It's because you're not giving enough money to the church. It's because you're not praying hard enough. It's because of some unmentionable sin in your life. It's because you've got sin in your camp. Malachi, after all, says that, that you brought a curse upon the entire nation because of the sin in your camp. And, and so the, the, there's this whole gospel predicated on false doctrine, on false theology, because they take verses like this and they pull it out and they make it mean what they want it to mean. You're going to prosper in all that you do and which one of us in our lives doesn't want to be happy? Which one of us in our lives doesn't want to prosper and be, 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 be celebration? So we look at this. The problem with this is that we equate the word joy with the word happiness. We, we, we assume that joy means happiness, but when in fact they, they literally have nothing in common. Happiness is derived, it's, a, it's an emotion derived on actions. And here's what I want to share with you about joy and and happiness. Happiness is about your circumstance. Joy is about your position. Not based on your circumstances. When you allow your life to be filled with happiness, you're going to be grossly uh, disappointed when when, when you're going to be a mood swing Christian. I've been there. I was there yesterday. I've had things going on around me that I'm allowing to, 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 to influence me more than it should. I had a great meeting with several men that I love with all my heart, that I appreciate dearly. Two hours of great conversation. And in one moment, one statement got me all spun up and my happiness shifted. And all of a sudden I wasn't happy anymore. So, so God must not be at work in that moment. No, 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 no. I was reminded of this, and I told our our pastors again this morning. I've said it tongue-in-cheek several times, and I'm going to share it again. I think I'm only going to preach this this health and wellness gospel because every time I preach, the Lord takes me through what I'm talking about. And as I was going over my message yesterday in my office, the Lord recalled to my mind, Andrew, joy is about a position. Happiness is about emotion, but joy, true joy in the Lord, is about your position in Christ regardless of what's going on around you. We need more joy-filled Christians, not more happy Christians. Amen. I mean, and if you're joy-filled, you won't be miserable. 
They work together. They, they, they're complete opposites, but they work together in that way that when you have the joy of the Lord in you, you're going to be happy. It's gonna, uh, you, ever, you, ever, you ever get around those kind of people that are just full of joy? And their happiness is contagious. They like vomit rainbows and they get it on you. You're like, oh, what is that? <laughs> and just happiness just, just spills out from them. And at first you're like, oh, that's kind of, okay, that's a little much. But then as you think on it, you're like, man, I wish I was a little more like that. Joy is about a position that we take in Christ, not a false moment of hope that gives the emotion of happiness. Prospering in all we do, the psalmist offers this up in light of what he's already shared. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Who prospers in all they do? Go back to verse 2 and link these together. Those who do light in the law of the Lord prosper in all they do. Why do they prosper in all they do? Because all that they do is predicated on the law of the Lord. When we love others as we love ourselves, when we love God with every fiber of our being, when we honor God with our finances, when we, when we, when we, when we consider others better than ourselves, when we look at ourselves with sober judgment, when we, when, we, when we care for the orphans and the widows, the least of these, we will be honored. We will persevere. We will, we will thrive. We will prosper in all we do because we are following the mandates of God's law. This is not a selfish or a self-centered gospel. Let's keep this in perspective. Verse 4. But not the wicked. They're not going to prosper in all they do. In fact, there's another word picture that he paints here. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. Guys, I am going to share what this means with you in mid-America, surrounded by a culture of agriculture, and run the risk of coming across as completely ignorant, because I am. As I read this, I came to understand that when a farmer will plow his crop or his field, and especially in this passage early on, what they would do is they would take a sickle and they would come through and they would cut the wheat down at the base, at the stock, and they would shuck it. And then what they would do is they would take a blanket, they would have one on the ground, they would take another one and they would pop it and all of the, the, the byproduct of shucking was on this blanket and as it went up in the air, the chaff, which is kind of like a thin membrane that separates the husk from the, the corn or the husk from the wheat, would be picked up by the wind and blown away. While anything of substance that was to be used had enough weight that even in the midst of the wind, it would fall back to the ground and would be collected and used for good. Anybody doing the James challenge? You don't have to answer that. Hopefully every head in here is going like a bobblehead, like we're at a baseball game. You were one of the first thousand. You need to go to more baseball games. None of you got that. <laughs> Listen. James 1.6. James uses something very similar to this. He said, those of you who lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. But when you ask, don't be, don't be double-minded. Because if you are double-minded when you ask... You're going to be like a ship in the middle of a storm, tossed and thrown about by the wind, by the wind. The more you meditate on God's word, you begin to draw these parallels, and you see how they work together. 
to form the foundation of our faith. And so he warns the wicked, they're not going to experience what you experience through multiplication of your faith, through adding the strength of being planted by the river. They're going to be like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. Verse 5 says they will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. Matthew 25 is a clear indication of this when Jesus, toward the end of his life in ministry, shares an illustration about sheep and goats. He talks about how for a while they share a common pen. And there are shepherds men that will go in there and they will mutually feed them and mutually water them and mutually care for them. But there is a season in which the sheep are separated from the goats because the goats have little use at all, but the sheep can be sheared and can be used for good. And he says, you will come to me and I will separate you like the sheep and the goats. And some of you will say, Lord, Lord, when do we not see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in jail or, or need anything? And he'll say, I tell you, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. You are a goat, but I am looking for sheep. And you will all, Jesus says, be responsible for your actions. A day of judgment is coming, friends, where what we do, the things that we do on purpose, the things that we do that aren't on purpose. And we need to understand that, that wickedness isn't always about actions. Wickedness is often just as, much, just as much about inaction. Knowing what we should do and not doing it is a sin of omission. And that is just as wicked as knowing what we shouldn't do and doing it anyway. We're gonna be held accountable for our actions. But there's hope. Listen to verse six. For the Lord, creator God of the whole universe, watches over the path of the godly. But the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Something I, I, I was thinking about as, again, it's amazing how you read these things and you draw parallels from your own experience. We just came out of the Christmas season where many, many families will celebrate the idea of Santa Claus. And what's, what, 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 what is so kind of prevalent with Santa Claus is that Santa Claus is, is up on this proverbial North Pole cloud, whatever that looks like. And he's looking down on our actions and he's keeping a running record of rights and wrongs, of who's naughty or nice. And based on our actions or inactions, that if we've been good enough, we'll somehow receive the, the proverbial gift that Santa Claus brings every year. I'm so glad that we don't serve a Santa Claus God. When the psalmist here writes that God watches over the path of those who meditate on his precepts. What he is suggesting, we need to get this, is that we've already received his gift and now he's looking out for us. He's got our back. He's got our best interests in mind. And when we lean into him, he'll guide our paths at the beginning, it was interesting. I had a bunch of these slogans and phrases and lyrics of songs when we got to the end, and there were two verses, and this is not a condemnation statement. I don't want you to walk out of here hanging your head and dragging your feet, feeling really bad about yourself that you haven't memorized enough scripture. But when I said, I've hidden your word in my heart, and I paused, there were a few of you that said that I might not sin against you, Psalm 119.11. And when I read that your word is the lamp unto my feet, and I paused, and a few of you said, and a light unto my path, Psalm 119.105. I desire, I want all of us to, to have, have the understanding of scripture, of knowledge, where we've meditated on his word, and that it would move from head knowledge, which informs, and it would move to a transformation, because we've taken it in. 
<laughs> you guys, I, I don't know why I do this. I overshare with you way too much. And I'm going to do it again. <laughs> there are seasons in my life where I lose sight of the precepts of God. Or at least where I'm more influenced by the things of the world around us than I am the precepts of God. And I've been in a season of that recently. There's been some circumstances, some things that have happened that have caused me to feel sad, that have caused me to feel separated and distant from people and from even at times from God, just wondering, Lord, where are you? What is this about? And when I allow the influencers of the world to speak into my life, then I'm, I'm told things like, I deserve to be happy. I've worked hard, so I deserve this. I, this is my money. I should get to spend it how I want to. I didn't get married to be miserable. I should be happy. So I'm gonna, I have a right to go be happy and, and leave this person behind. And so I'm going to go find somebody that makes me happy. And the Lord reminded me this week, Andrew... Would you recall to mind what James says in 1 and what Paul says in Romans 5 about rejoicing in sufferings because suffering develops perseverance and perseverance develops character and character develops hope. And Paul says hope will not disappoint us because God has already poured out his love into our hearts by the spirit whom he's given us. And James, James goes a little bit different and he says, look, and that hope, that hope is going to continue to develop in you until it's come up and you've been fully raised up, mature, not lacking anything. Yesterday, when I was with these group of guys, we were all having a conversation around the same thing, the common mission and vision of the church, and where we believe God's calling us to go as staff and as elders. And one person that I love dearly made a statement that I took out of context, and I allowed circumstances around me to, to, to influence my emotion. And I lost sight, and I, 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 I cooked. Not really cooked. Yeah, I don't want you guys to picture a board meeting where I'm throwing chairs and punching people, and you know, people are buying popcorn watching this going, ooh, this is good church. That's not what it was. But there was just a lot of misunderstandings until we got all the way through and said, hey, we, we all want the same thing. We're just talking about how we're going to get there. But let's focus on what the word of God says. And I found myself later going, you're right. Which I say a lot, by the way. Usually to my wife. But it happens I don't want you to walk out of here feeling bad about yourself that you haven't memorized enough scripture. I want you to walk out of here encouraged, knowing that if you've received the gift that God has for you, that God's watching out for you. And that in order to live the life God's called you to, he's given us opportunities and, and tools and resources that we can apply to our lives to grow stronger in our faith every day, that we can multiply our faith. And one of those is study, one of those is prayer, but another one is meditating on God's word, taking it in and going over. That's why I'm having you read James over and over and over again. I don't want just the head knowledge that informs us. I want the living knowledge that transforms us. So that when you're faced with circumstances in life that are difficult, you can remember that who you are is based on the joy of the Lord and not the emotion of happiness that is so fleeting. So this week, my challenge, my challenge is that you will take the word of God and if you haven't started the James challenge, you can certainly do that. Or let me offer this. Six verses. Just take Psalm chapter one, verses one through six, and read over them multiple times and just 
Chew on it. Just chew on it. And let it begin to transform you as you plant yourself in the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to nourish your soul and to inform your life. I can't think of a better way to meditate than on thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus in our lives. The Apostle Paul was talking to the church in Corinth. And he was talking about worship. You can read about spiritual gifts and worship, specifically in 1 Corinthians 9, 10, 11, and 12. But in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he brings to light a meditation that has transformed his life. Now, the words are going to come up on the screen, and I'm going to share with you in, in somewhat of a narrative, reflective. The Apostle Paul says something along the lines of, I want to pass on to you what I received from the Lord. This is what I've personally experienced from the Lord, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting at a, a table with his disciples. It was Passover. There was a celebration that was, that was a part of their worship experience. It was a part of practicing their religion and faithfulness to God. And as they were sitting there, there were prayers that they would pray and there were uh, hymns that they would sing and there were, there, were, there were these interactions they would have around a common meal with bitter herbs and spices and wine and bread and meat. And Jesus, while he was having this meal, he took bread and he stood up amongst his disciples and he said, guys, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And then he sits down and they begin to murmur, what does Jesus mean? This body's for you. What does he mean? And they go on about their celebration meal and sometime later, Jesus stands up and he takes a common cup of wine and he says, guys, this cup, this cup represents my, my blood, which is spilled out for you. Do this as often as you do this. Remember me. Think of me. Do this often. And as you do, remember the sacrifice. Remember that I'm giving my body and I'm giving my blood for you. And the more that they spend time going through this and process, Jesus says, look, you don't understand what I'm saying. And I'm here now, but in a little while I won't be. And you can't go with me where I'm going, but I'm going to come back for you. And when I do, everything's going to be different. It's for all eternity. Jesus' disciples, I just envision, are sitting there, speechless. What does Jesus mean? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And they're meditating on it. And Jesus leaves us this opportunity to worship where we get to think on this and where we get to celebrate. And so as a, as a body, as a church, what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate in the form of communion. We celebrate in all kinds of ways. We worship God in all kinds of ways. We worship God by giving of our tithes and our offerings. We worship God by coming together and encouraging one another. We worship God by singing these amazing songs with such a talented group of individuals. We, we worship God by reading his scripture. But one of the ways that we worship God is through the Holy Eucharist, the communion table, where we're going to come and you're going to be able to go to four different tables. Two are here at the front, to my right and my left. Two are in the back. On the right, the, the table located by the cross, I've been told is gluten-free. So if you have a gluten intolerance or you just don't like the way gluten tastes, does gluten taste? It's over there. As you feel comfortable, as you spend some time just thinking on this, I invite you to come and receive the Lord's Supper and celebrate, commemorate, remember, rejoice.
Meditate on Christ in you and through you.